Professor Zambarto and Ryan Vaca join me to talk about their article on the copyright jurisprudence of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You're listening to The Legal Impact, the weekly podcast presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD graduate programs and online professional certificates. Learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. So, Anna Ryan, thanks for joining me today. On September 18th, 2020, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. The primary viewing of her legacy was really centered around civil rights. But just as with all uh, SCOTUS justices, there are all sorts of cases that they that they approach while they're on the bench. Uh, And let's put you in the hot seat first. As a law professor, how would you summarize the career of Ruth Bader Ginsburg at like a high level? So, you know, she was a, a Obviously, she was a law professor, uh, one of the few women law professors when she got started and did all the civil, a lot of civil rights work, really important civil rights work for women's equality. And uh, she's very well regarded. And she was one of those unique people at the time in the 70s. You know, um, there was a lot of in your face feminism and uh, that work that was needed for some things to sort of wake people up. But she seemed to uh, do very radical things in a very sort of polite, unassuming way, and somewhat stay, given how radical the agenda was, somewhat stay fairly, um, you know, always polite. This is kind of what she was known for. But when she, you know, uh, I was in college when Sandra Day O'Connor became the first woman uh, Supreme Court justice, and that was a big deal. Don't get me wrong, that was a big deal. But for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, somebody who championed women's rights to get to, you know, use, you know, off of her work and her prestige to become a judge on the D.C. Circuit and a Supreme Court justice is really exciting. So what did her legacy look like in the realm of copyright, which is intellectual property? Of course, those issues eventually make it to the Supreme Court, and it's kind of outside of what the mainstream tend to cover. She decided a lot of copyright cases or wrote opinions and and joined opinions in a lot of copyright cases during her time on the Supreme Court and also during her time on the D.C. Circuit. She's generally painted as a uh, as being sort of a, a strong copyright pro copyright owner or pro author justice and and so that that's that's sort of the the common story that's told about her um, and you know one of the things that we were trying to do in this in this paper is to look and see whether that was true uh, and. And also see what else was driving her, what was what was driving the results that she would be sort of this strong copyright jurist. And what were some of those uh, results that came up from your research? So we had um, we saw some different themes in our jurisprudence that we thought was you know pretty interesting. Uh, one of the parts that I kind of focused on was uh, what we call incrementalism. And we label her an incrementalist, although if you type the word incrementalist using word, you're gonna, <laughs> they're going to think you misspelled something, but that's how we're defining her. And uh, we saw that in her gender stuff, but as, as well as always being polite, she was, you know, she was, uh, she seemed to, you know, to stay a little bit under the radar again, uh, go at a kind of quiet pace. And she also made sort of the brilliant move of litigating cases in which men were the victims, to give everybody, you know, just make the point that she was trying to make, which is women aren't asking for anything special. We want to be equal and men want to be equal because both of us lose when we're not. And gender stereotyping, you know, replaces reality and opportunity. So the incrementalism in a woman, uh, women's rights stuff was uh, evident in the steps that she took. It was a step-by-step kind of radical agenda. But it's most obvious because she's been critical of, uh, had been critical in her lifetime of Roe v. Wade. Not the outcome, but the, maybe the process. Uh, she thought it was too much too soon, 
And she's like later in her life said, you know, thought that one of the reasons that the, the battle goes on and the question never seems to be resolved is she feels like that's a legacy of the fact that it was too much too soon and that it should have been incremental. Maybe, uh, but she took the same approach, I think, in a lot of things. And certainly we saw that going through her copyright jurisprudence. Yeah. What specific intellectual property based cases uh, would you see as um, great examples of those? So one of the, um, I'd say maybe three of the copyright cases, um, they're all sort of related, uh, that show incrementalism are what we've what we've been calling the, uh, the the trilogy of the first sale doctrine, and basically what what these cases involve are copyrighted products that were manufactured somewhere, either in the U.S. or abroad, um, depending on the case. Different cases have uh, different facts, and the question is whether or not the copyright owner can restrict importation into the U.S. And so in the, in the first of the cases uh, called Lanza, the, the, the product at issue involved uh, shampoo bottles. And the, the, the shampoo was manufactured in the U.S., then sent abroad. And then one of the foreign purchaser purchased them from one of the foreign distributors and then imported it back into the U.S. to try to sell it here. Uh, and the question uh, the court had at the time was, is this a violation of the distribution right? The majority of the court said, no, this isn't a, a violation of the distribution right. But Justice Ginsburg took, uh, again, sort of a, she took an incrementalist view where she said, this case involves round trip goods, right? They started in the US, they went abroad, they came back to the US. It's not a case where they were manufactured abroad and then brought to the US. That's a different case. We don't need to decide that. But she agreed with the majority in, in that there was no, no violation there. So then we fast forward to uh, sort of the early to mid 2010s, and uh, another case comes up. Uh, of the Omega case, uh, Omega versus Costco, and that involves sort of some engravings on on watches. And here, unlike in the Lanza case with the shampoo, the watches were manufactured abroad and then brought into the U.S. And so this case, it, it goes to the Supreme Court. Unfortunately, the court split 4-4 because Justice Kagan uh, had to recuse herself because she had worked on the case when she was Solicitor General. Um, and so we don't know how that one was going to come out. But then we go to the Kurtzang case a few years later, and this involved uh, textbooks that were uh, manufactured or you know, produced in Thailand purchased there and then brought back into the U.S. And so it's the exact same question that, that was raised. There, uh, the court held that, the majority held that the, uh, that there was no violation of the distribution right. Justice Ginsburg files a dissenting opinion and said, uh, yes, this, this should be a violation. This should count as a violation um, because it, it wasn't manufactured in the U.S. And she gave, you know, sort of went into detail about the, the rationale behind it. But Looking at all three cases together, especially the first and third, really shows this incrementalist view where she wasn't willing to go as far as the majority in the first case um, because those weren't the facts, right? She was going to limit it to this very narrow circumstance. And if it turned out that, you know, 15 years later or so, we get a case with different facts, um, then we can address that issue. And so she was moving very slowly to develop copyright law 
in in the way that she saw fit. Now, how would you feel this puts her overall with regards to the conservative versus liberal side of the court with regards to incrementalism? To me, this seems much more what a conservative justice is more known for thinking. Yeah, which is why it's kind of funny because the women's rights stuff, she didn't come, you know, (laughs) that's where she really did. That's where the best example of her incrementalism. So that just kind of, that's the theory. She's like, you know, she had this conservative aura about her when what she was doing, you know, really was quite radical, uh, but it was genius. I mean, it was genius to sneak it kind of in. It is unusual that she um, was so conservative in her copyright rulings because she and Breyer was known as the other sort of uber liberal, I guess, for long term, um, uh, were often apart. Uh, they, they bickered with each other constantly on copyright. They really didn't agree and were often on different sides up until the last case. The last case, they both dissented together, which is kind of interesting. I wonder if it, I was surprised by Breyer, although not by Ginsburg at that point. The other thing that's is interesting that I'm just discovering is I'm doing a little bit of research on um, her patent law opinions is that she tended not to be like, if you look at her patent jurisprudence, it tends to follow a more small L liberal kind of pattern that she's not really pro strong patent in the same way she seems to be pro strong copyright. So the other thing that I would add is uh, with respect to, you know, uh, her being sort of a conservative in the, in the copyright realm is that if we think of copyright in terms of politics, it doesn't really fit um, very nicely in in uh, the way we think about you know, abortion or we think about uh, uh, you know, civil rights or anything like that or voting rights or whatever. There's what you find, you know, sort of looking throughout history is you'll find a lot of uh, sort of very liberal justices taking conservative views on uh, certain copyright cases and vice versa. And, and it's um, and so they, they don't really fit neatly. Copyright doesn't really fit neatly into a particular um, sort of political dichotomy. Okay. Now, moving away from incrementalism, what other themes uh, kind of come across when you look over her copyright jurisprudence? Yeah, so the I would say the other three themes that we've identified, I'll just kind of lay them out here and, and we can uh, delve into each of them. Uh, one is uh, intergovernmental deference. And so thinking about how the different branches of government and the different levels of government interact with each other um, to, to, to develop the law and interpret the law and expand or contract the law. Um, another is seeking alternatives is another theme that we, we came up with. And you know, looking to ways, uh, looking to, to alternative mechanisms that exist that can sort of alleviate some of the concerns, the, the policy concerns, or other legal arguments that exist by you know by the parties or or the other side of the uh, of the court. And then the final theme that we identified is what we call stoicism, then anger, um, and and we can we can chat about that as well. <laughs> Let's start with the last one. That stands out to me. Okay. So uh, the stoicism is, you know, just basically the essence of Ruth Bader Ginsburg when you kind of think of her. And especially um, these last few years when she became quite the celebrity as the notorious RBG. If you've seen any of the movies about her life, they always kind of feature her stoicism and their ability to stay, you know, calm and unrattled, whether she's in the gym doing planks or she's, you know, arguing before the Supreme Court. And uh, she also, you know, humor, you know, sort of subtlety, like um, at some point, I think it, I can't remember, one of the justices who uh, she uh, 
had an overlap with on the Supreme Court, but had argued in front of when she was arguing for women's rights, passed away, and they his papers became uh, enough time passed that his papers became public. And somewhere in there, he mentioned having seen Ruth Bader Ginsburg in this bright red dress, and he was talking about how hot she looked in this. But I'm, I'm not kidding. I wish it was bright red dress. And her response to that was just like classic. She said, um, not me, because she would advise people you dress completely neutrally. You don't want your clothes to be a distraction. She said, he might have wanted to see me in a bright red dress, but he didn't see me in a bright red dress. So I have to love that. But I think um, I think Bush v. Gore was really hard on her, right, a non-IP case. Um, the Ledbetter case was extremely hard on her, the you know, pay equity case. Um, she was quite triumphant when Congress finally picked it up. You know, it was one of Obama's first pieces of legislation was to get the Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act passed. So she she saw triumph, but she felt like everyone let her down on the or people let her down on the court because that was a that that was a hard one for her. So you started to see uh, under the stoicism brief flashes of fury, <laughs> like a, like with a Bush v. Gore, the infamous I dissent instead of I respectfully dissent. Some of the language around a lead better. And in fact, in her last, uh, the last opinion she wrote, the dissent that she wrote with Breyer is a little, um, a little prickly there. So in copyright law. So, you know, I think it's just very hard on her, the changes in society and the court and uh, the previous administration, I know was kind of hard on her. So I, I think she's entitled. There were minute, maybe a few times when it wasn't really the best idea, um, but I can totally relate to that. Many of us can. What about the intergovernmental process? Yeah, so the intergovernmental deference, um, there's really sort of two parts to it. Um, and this is, uh, so the first is um, sort of evolving and interpreting the law in a way that, that's optimal, but not necessarily the courts saying, here's what the, the law is and blocking Congress in um, or states or the president or whoever, um, but really as seeing the, the development of law as a dialogue between the different branches. So the it would be the court, the Supreme Court saying, here's uh, how, you know, here's how we interpret the law. We're going to cabin you in a little bit this way, but we've still given you a lot of room to operate. Um, you can, if you, of course, want to change the law, you, you're more than willing to do, you're more than uh, uh, capable of doing so, assuming it's a statute, um, then that's you know, that, that's fine. Um, but we, we want to give you the ability to operate uh, and, and have this conversation with us so that we can interpret it correctly. And again, sort of building on the incremental incrementalist view, we can build it slowly um, because we don't want to get it wrong and then sort of block Congress or the president or states or copyright office or whatever. Um, we don't want to block them from doing what's what's actually best um, as long as they're sort of doing, doing it the right way. So that's the intergovernmental dialogue. The other part of it is uh, what we call institutional capacity constraints. And that is the court recognizing or Justice Ginsburg recognizing that the court or courts in general um, don't have the abilities really to do a lot of what they what, what may be best. Right. So they they have sort of limited capabilities. They don't you know, they they don't have any real enforcement mechanism. Um, they don't have money to be able to allocate, you know, funds to the copyright office if that's what it needs. Um, that's, you know, that's what Congress is for. That's what the executive branch is for. And so by by recognizing these limitations, it also helps to show, uh, it, it helps in the interpretation of copyright law um, so that the court doesn't go sort of too far astray um, and 
have to you know, suffer you know, some of the backlash perhaps from the from the political branches. The last theme, if I remember, was preference for alternative mechanisms for relief. Who wants to touch on that? So I can pick that one up just quickly. Um, there was a big deal case, uh, the Tassini case, uh, which came about because um, when you are a journalist and you ha- you're like an employee, you the but under the work for hire doctrine, your employer, like the, it might be the New York Times, the Concord Monitor, whatever, owns the copyright in your work, so it's no problem. They, they, they're the author, and the employees get paid, right? That's their benefit. They get paid and benefits whenever they get. Well, of course, the newspapers don't want to rely on just employees because employees are expensive. They would like to have stringers. So stringers are basically independent contractors, and one of the ways that stringers make them make their money is they resell stuff. So they keep their copyright. So they have a story and uh, they might sell it to the, you know, license it to the New York Times. The New York Times runs it. And then maybe two days later, the Concord Monitor, you know, the, the way, other ways to distrib- distribute it. So one would get the first publication and then you get ongoing revenue. Since you weren't an employee, that would be a way to make some more money. But because it wasn't uh, work for hire uh, and they kept their copyrights, when the New York Times was publishing, you know, goes on like LexisNexis or something with their volume, you know, their, with their issues, uh, they were taking the articles written by the stringers and treating it like they own the copyright. You know, they would just put it back in. Now, if they hadn't treated it like it was their copyright, when they had to negotiate with each one, and they just didn't want to do that, they just figured it's ours. You know, and so it, under that, it was a somewhat arguable under the Copyright Act, but not really. So ultimately, the stringers prevailed. Um, but the question was, everyone was really worried is like, are they going to try to hold the publisher sort of hostage for a lot of money to plug in the holes? Like, cause it, it was a lot, it was a lot of articles over a lot of years. And as some people put, it's going to be like a donut hole in our history, uh, if, if these articles aren't up there. But of course, as we've been against for quite intelligently says, there's not going to be a hole in our history because they want the money, right? They don't want to take it out because <laughs> they don't want to publish. They want to publish. They just want to get paid for it. Uh, so she just really kind of pushed the, the court in, the, in favor of uh, an alternative mechanism of just, you know, calculating in a more efficient way, uh, ways that they might get reimbursed. So, uh, and she also, because she didn't want the donut hole, she, she really dissuaded them from injunctions, which is usually an automatic copyright remedy that we didn't want injunctions. We wanted money. And so that was a, that was a pretty good alternative. And, um, you know, you see that in different things, although as Ryan has pointed out, uh, in her equal, you know, women's rights and civil rights stuff, and she had no interest in alternative remedies. It was uh, that, that was she's very different on that. And and he ran a, a quite astutely points to the VMI case where VMI was all you know all male, and women wanted to be able to serve in, in that or something, you know, wanted to be able to uh, attend. And uh, Virginia said, oh, no, 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 we'll make a girls school, I'll make a girls leader school, don't worry, it'll be like separate but equal, what could go wrong? And uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said a lot, <laughs> it's not the same experience, that it may be a good experience, but it's not the same experience, and that's what women are entitled to. So she wasn't up for any alternatives there. What's the future of her legacy in the realm of intellectual property? Strong copyright, very strong copyright. Um, similar, indeed, as, as we talked about a little bit in a paper to her daughter, uh, Jane Ginsburg, who teaches copyright law at Columbia, very well regarded, very prominent, a lot of scholarship, and she tends to also be an advocate for authors and strong copyright. So um, that, I think, will be her legacy. I, um, I do know the Elder versus Ashcroft case, uh, which dealt with, well, boy, what it dealt with, but it just... Um, that's many people see that as sort of the one case that either makes or breaks. Or if you like the way that turned out, you like your copyright jurisprudence. And if you don't, you don't. Ryan, anything to add? Yeah, I would say, I think you know, everything that, that Ann said is, is right. Um, I would just add that although that, I mean, that is sort of what she, that, that is sort of her, her legacy as being a sort of strong uh, copyright proponent. 
one of the things that we try to do in the paper is to show that it actually, it's not as extreme as it was previously thought. Um, once you start considering not just her opinions and, and not just select opinions, right? If you focus on Eldred, then yeah, it's very easy to paint her as the, the strong uh, copyright proponent. Um, but if you look at all, and, and you can you can sort of cherry pick cases and and you know, make that case quite easily. But if you look at all of her cases combined, all of the copyright cases, what you see is that it's actually a little more balanced than people previously thought. There's actually there are quite a few opinions that she joined. She didn't author, but she joined that were in favor of the accused infringer. And so that's something that, that people really didn't take note of before and that I think our, our paper brings to light. A copy of the article will be linked in the podcast description, so please, everyone, be sure to check that out. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact, presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple, Google, and Spotify.